Welcome to Love Your Library, Hampshire Libraries podcast. I'm Kate Price-McCarthy, here for the first time with my co-host Hattie Dulac. Hello, Hattie. Hi, Kate. It's great to be here. And thanks to our supporter, BorrowBox, our library app that allows you to download ebooks and audiobooks straight to your phone or tablet. All you need is your library membership number and PIN. So thanks to Hattie for stepping into the shoes of my previous podcast partner, Mary, who'll be joining us later in the podcast to talk about one of our book recommendations on BorrowBox this month. Now, Hattie has been a valued contributor in past editions of the podcast, giving us her insights into anything from Michael Morpurgo to Anne Tyler. She's a keen book lover, of course, and it's great to welcome her to the podcast hot seat. Thanks so much, Kate. It's really good to be here. As we're recording this, we're in the midst of Black History Month, which is a great opportunity to celebrate the huge contribution Black authors have made to the literary landscape of this country. We're spotlighting an inspiring collection of titles on BorrowBox as part of Black History Month, including books, audiobooks and poetry by authors such as Camilla Shamsi, Renia Edo-Lodge and Raymond Antrobus. Hmm, definitely worth taking a look at those inspiring works. We'll include links on the podcast show notes. This episode's title is inspired by our wonderful guest author, Anthony Horowitz, who joined us to talk about his new book, Moonflower Murders, as well as to talk about the countless other projects he's working on at the moment. Really excited about that one, Kate. And later in the podcast, we're going to be chatting with Mary about a book which tells the unknown stories of the five murder victims of Jack the Ripper. And it's one of our unlimited audiobooks on BorrowBox this month. Okay, so on to the lovely Anthony Horowitz, our guest author this month. He is one of the most successful writers working in the UK, juggling books, TV series, films, plays and journalism. He's written almost 50 books, including the best-selling teen spy series, Alex Ryder, which has sold around 19 million copies worldwide. He's also written and created some of this country's most successful television series, including the first series of much-loved Midsummer Murders and the award-winning drama Foil's War. He is also an acclaimed writer for adults, writing two Sherlock Holmes novels, one of which is called The House of Silk and the other Moriarty, and a James Bond novel. And as well as these, if that wasn't enough, he's also written two different ongoing detective series. Now, one series turns the detective genre on its head by featuring the author as the clueless narrator, which listeners will know and love as The Word is Murder and The Sentence is Death. And there's a second series which features book editor Susan Ryland and brilliantly achieves this amazing feat of implanting one whodunit story inside another. The latest in his Susan Ryland series is the sequel to Magpie Murders and, in the same theme, is this time called Moonflower Murders. Here's Anthony talking to Kate about his new book. The interview kicks off with Anthony introducing and reading a short passage from the story. This comes from chapter one, where where our two hoteliers, uh, Lawrence and Pauline Traherne, have come to visit Susan Ryland, who has retired to a hotel in Crete. And this is their discussion. Do you live in Suffolk? I asked. Yes, we own a hotel near Woodbridge. Mr. Khan has helped us on one or two occasions. Lawrence hesitated, suddenly uncomfortable. I was speaking to him last week about a rather difficult matter, and he suggested we talk to you. I wondered how a solicitor, Mr. Khan, had known I was here in Crete. Someone else must have told him, because I certainly hadn't. You came all this way to talk to me? I asked. Oh, it's not really that far. We travel quite a bit anyway. We're staying at the Minos Beach. He pointed in the direction of his hotel. 
which is on the other side of a tennis court right next to mine. It confirmed my first opinion that the Trehearns were rich. The Minos Beach was a boutique hotel with private villas and a garden full of sculptures. It cost around £300 a night. I did think about ringing, he went on, but it's not something I'd want to discuss over the phone. This was getting more mysterious and frankly annoying by the minute. A four-hour flight from Stansted, a one-hour drive from Heraklion. Getting here had hardly been a struggle. What is this about, I asked. It's about a murder. That last word hung in the air for a moment. On the other side of the terrace, the sun was shining. A bunch of local children were laughing and shouting, splashing about in the Aegean. Families were packed together around the tables. I watched Van Gelis go past with a tray laden with orange juice and iced coffee. What murder? I asked. So there it is, a little introduction to Susan and her introduction to the murder that they then describe, which has taken place in England. You've done it again. You've managed the Herculean task of devising a whodunit story within a whodunit story, with both stories interconnecting like the workings of a Swiss watch. You make life hard for yourself, but I get the feeling you like to set yourself a tough challenge. Um, Yes, actually, I think that is part of the fun of writing Moonflower Murders, is simply that it was so difficult to do and construct. And of course, always thinking that, it, that it's got to be easy to read. That's the secret of it. You said a Swiss watch. A Swiss watch has got elaborate mechanisms, cogs and wheels and all the rest of it. But actually, it tells the time. And that's very simple. And I think that's what I'm trying to do with the books as well. And incidentally, when you said that it was a Herculean task, I wonder whether you were referring to Greek mythology or to a certain other detective who was very much influenced me. You might be right. <laughs> You've made it an easy and pleasurable read for us, but it must have been the most complex piece of planning. It did take months to write. And I can show you a notebook which is just jammed with doodles and diagrams and questions and characters and, and arrows and sort of and crossings out and all the rest of it. Uh, and sometimes I think actually it takes longer to think of these things, but it does to write them. But if, you, you know, one of, I'm, not, I'm not a great reader of murder mysteries if I find myself getting lost. And so I take an enormous amount of care to make sure that the reader always knows who everybody is, where they are, what's happening and what the clues are. So that everything is sort of, you know, laid out like, like a sort of a feast, I hope. Now, this is a couple of years after the events in Magpie Murders, and Susan Ryland is no longer an editor, uh, but is instead running a small hotel in Crete, when a couple turn up out of the blue from the UK with an unusual request. Could you tell us a bit more about how the story develops from there? Certainly. The couple, who are called uh, Lawrence and Paula, or Pauline, I can't remember now, um, have a hotel in England. And eight years earlier, their daughter got married in that hotel. And on the actual day or the night of the, of the marriage, uh, somebody was murdered inside the hotel. Somebody unconnected to the wedding, unconnected to the family. But nonetheless, it, of course, cast something of a shadow on the big day. An arrest has been made. Um, a man is now in prison for committing this murder. But the daughter has always said that the wrong person was arrested. And recently, she has read a book called Atticus Punt Takes the Case, a book which our hero, Susan, edited. And inside the book, this young woman has found a clue to suggest to her that she was right all along and the wrong person is behind bars. Unfortunately, she has now disappeared. So the couple, Lawrence and Pauline, ask Susan to come to England to investigate and above all to read the book to see if, to see if she can find the missing clue. 
Now, I was interested to hear that Magpie Murders, the first Susan Ryland book, was initially intended as a one-off and that you were encouraged to write more by readers wanting to hear more about Susan. I'd envisaged you tackling the nine Alan Conway books one by one. I'd been looking forward to you rising to the challenge of Atticus Pund Abroad and Gas and Cyanide. So um, any thoughts of more Susan Ryland mysteries? Well, first of all, I can't write all the Atticus Pund stories because actually in Magpie Murders, and I think even in Moonflower Murders, I mentioned the solutions to at least a couple of them. So those ones are now out of court. Um, I don't think I will do more than, I, I might do a third. I mean, I am tempted because I do love the whole setup and I love the character of Susan, particularly the fact that she's not a detective. I think it's quite fun to write about somebody investigating murder, but from an editing point of view, for, you know, that's how her entry into it is her knowledge of publishing and books which I think is interesting in itself. So I would like to return to the character, um, but I don't think I could do it more than three times because, as we've already said, these are very elaborate, difficult books to write, and I'm not sure I could find another variation on the theme to keep each book unique if I went on too long. Um, I should say, incidentally, that one of the reasons for writing the second book was that the first one is going to be televised, hopefully next year we're filming it, and the producers were very keen that there should be a sequel. The editors, my publishers, also wanted a sequel, so in a way my arm was twisted into doing it in the first place, and it took me a long, long time to come up with the idea for this one. So thinking forward, I'm not sure how many more there are in me. Maybe just one more. Oh, that's very exciting. Can you give us any clues as to who will be playing all the different characters? I wish I could tell you, but unfortunately, since contracts haven't been signed in this COVID age, where we're not even sure if we can actually film next year because it's so difficult, I'm simply not at liberty yet to say anything, except that we do have a wonderful piece of casting and I hope we can announce it in January. Well, that's something to look forward to. I mentioned this list of Alan Conway books because, of course, with a book within the book structure, we see all the normal blurb at the start of Atticus Punt Takes the Case, including the reviews of the book from the media and from other writers, which for this book included uh, Peter James and Lee Child. Did you ask these authors to contribute their own reviews or did you enjoy imagining what they'd say yourself? Um, I actually, <laughs> I, I wrote those reviews myself, I'm afraid. They, they couldn't review a book they'd never read. But they were very, I have to say, they were terribly generous and kind. And, uh, and uh, Kate Moss is in there too, uh, a very dear friend of mine. In both books, Magpie Murders and in this one, we had authors chipping in with their um, with their with their kind remarks, and it does make me remind me how very collegiate crime writers are. You know, it's a, it's a very nice family to be a part of. Everybody is very supportive, and um, nobody I asked uh, refused. That does seem to be a very unusual thing about detective fiction writers. They do seem to be there does seem to be this brotherhood of authors who all support each other. Well, brotherhood and a sorority, of course. Yes, indeed. Um, do very much like the. Um, that quality about it. It's funny that people who deal in murder and violence and and brutality should themselves be so terribly nice, but that is how it is. Now, throughout this book, as with your other detective fiction, you've stuffed it full of clues and jokes and puzzles, which for me as a reader is an absolute joy. But I noticed your narrator, Susan, is quite tough with Alan about this habit. She even talks a bit about his anagrams undermining the quality of his writing. Have you had an editor who's picked you up about this or is it part of your self-deprecating nature? (laughs) What a lovely question. Um, I think that I do love playing games. I've always loved magic and illusion and and tricks. I love Tintin books, which are full of those things. And, uh, And I do try to insert into the book sort of puzzles within puzzles. So acronyms, anagrams are many of which incidentally you won't have spotted because they're not even revealed at the end of the book. They're there for somebody some some day in a long way away from now to, to stumble upon and smile at. 
And no, I don't get into trouble for it. I think it's part of the game. You know, the, the Hawthorne books which I'm now writing, which actually have me in them as a character, are very sort of metafiction and they're full of sort of jokes and in-jokes and cross-references and, all, and to my life and to the people I know and to the real world. And I think that just adds an, an extra element to it. I think there's a danger of allowing it to become what's the word for it, too, getting too smug about it, too self-satisfied about it, you know, making it too much sort of an in-joke for me and my friends. It's there for everyone, and I think it just adds to the pleasure of it. I mentioned this self-deprecating nature because I hear you're a man of two halves during the writing process, uh, brimful of confidence when you've got a pen in your hand, but then possibly broken with self-doubt once you've sent it off to your publishers. Why do you think that is? I think most writers are like that, actually. I think it's, uh, I mean, I'm not sure broken with self-doubt is quite... That's, that's perhaps a little bit too strong, but I, I think... Every writer I know has expressed the fear of being found out, the sort of the, the realisation that suddenly the world will wake up to realise that you are no good at your job, that your books aren't any good, that you are yourself a, a fake. And I, I live with that all the time. And you're quite right. When I'm writing, I have a lot of confidence and I believe it's the greatest book ever written, the greatest murder mystery, and no one's going to solve it and everyone's going to love it. And then the moment it's finished, I go into this great despond of sort of of hopelessness and fear and sort of and worry what will the critics say what will people like yourself say what will what will the readers think and and you know and it's all terrible and then you know you just get used to it it's a roller coaster being a being a ride being being a writer to some extent and i think you just have to to live with it but as i as i always say to other writers or to young writers new writers in particular you cannot have these doubts while you are writing writing comes from a self-belief and self-confidence and a love of what you're doing and it's only when you finished it that you can then have afford to have these doubts and and you know i recognize them for what they are you know i'm very fortunate in that my books do seem to do quite well and people do seem to like them uh but but they won't go away I'm also interested in your views about why while we have a horror of murder in real life why is it we do seem to love it in fiction it's something I've often pondered. It's a question I have raised in the books. I think in Magpie Murders, there's a whole section in which Susan discusses precisely this with one of the other characters. Um, part of it is context. I think that when you enter a whodunit, you know you are entering, a, to a certain extent, an unreal world, because the murders that take place in a whodunit have no resemblance to the sorts of murders that police investigate every day. I mean, if I were to create a murder in which somebody just loses their temper and smashes a bottle and accidentally cuts somebody's throat with it, you're going to have a book which is really quite unpleasant and not, not really worth reading. But I mean, may not. I mean, you know, I'm sure there are books that have exactly that that work brilliantly. But a whodunit where there are clues and suspects and red herrings and, and strange things happen and, and, and nothing is quite what it seems, that belongs to, to a completely rarefied world. If you say Agatha Christie, Dorothy L. Sayers, Ellery Queen, Josephine Tain, Guy Marsh, whoever you like, you automatically enter a certain sort of world. I think the TV show, Midsummer Murders did it so terribly well. But, you know, every time that music played and you opened on a little village with thatched cottages and little old ladies riding tricycles, you knew you were in an England that didn't really exist at all. So therefore, that sort of murder becomes enjoyable. So, I, that's, so the answer to your question is, is that the murder in these books is not like murder in real life. It is an excuse largely for a story. In my book, I do not even really linger on the horrible details of death. I have seen dead bodies. It is not nice. It, death is not something that is attractive. In my books, it is more like an actor lying on the floor with a pool of red ink around their head. You've talked about some of the huge figures in the golden age of detective fiction, and I can see that this book and its predecessor, Magpie Murders, is almost like a love story to those writers. What is it about these writers that you admire so much? I love their elegance, and I love their gentility. I love a world in which there are 
there's time to stop and think and to communicate and to listen where you're not always rushing around. So I love the pace of that world, the absence of mobile phones, but largely the absence of forensics as well. Forensics to me, although I know that they have a large part to play in murder mystery writing, but they spoil the fun as far as I'm concerned. I'm much more at home with the Sherlock Holmes approach, but you can sit in an armchair. Indeed, Agatha Christie wrote a, a story, Five Little Pigs. Um, Hercule Poirot doesn't even visit any of the, doesn't visit the crime scene. He solves it more or less from his armchair. Um, and I, I think that is the, the attraction of it, the sort of the, the sort of civility of it all. Uh, and that, that in, a, in a world which is increasingly violent and angry and, uh, and difficult to comprehend, there is a, there's something very nice about retreating into a world in which the truth will finally come out and everything will be understood. I understand you've credited books and libraries with having a huge positive impact on you when you were a young boy. Coming from a library background, it would be interesting to know a bit more about the impact that had on you. Well, I was very unhappy at my school. When I was an eight-year-old child, I was sent to a boarding school in North London where I was very, very unhappy because I was neither good at, 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 at sport and I was not clever. And if you're going to be in the private school system in this country, you do have to be good at one or the other. And I, I, I fell into the void in between them. I was an overweight child. My teacher thought I was useless and unpleasant. And uh, I had very few friends. And I found myself when I was about 10. And, and the room I found myself in was the school library. I, even as I speak to you, I can see the room. I can see the door. I can see the shelves. I can see the notice board with a, with a sign on it telling me which books are going to be coming in next week. And... I started to read not not fantastically clever books. My early loves were Tintin, I think I've already mentioned, and Willard Price I absolutely loved, um, the adventure stories, which is still in print to this day. But the the escape of reading, the pleasure of entering another world, the idea that a book was shaped like a door, I and mean, that every time I opened a book, I went through that door into another world that was not this horrible school, it stays with me to this day. And um Reading is still, for me, the great escape, and libraries, of course, provide free of charge that service to the entire public. They are a wonderful, wonderful force uh, in, in our daily life. So so I, I would also add, incidentally, that, that because I began to read books, I began to tell stories to the other children in the school. That's where my career began, was in the dormitory, telling stories um, after lights out. And suddenly I made friends, and at the same time I realised that I wasn't as stupid as my teachers had told me. I did have one talent which is a talent to create stories. And that has been all I have done ever since. Now, like many people, I'm a huge fan of your other adult series of books featuring Daniel Hawthorne. I might say he's possibly my favourite character in contemporary fiction. Oh, you're very kind, thank you. You've taken the whodunit form and turned it on its head with the normally all-knowing author cast as possibly the most clueless character in the book. Can we hope for a new Daniel Hawthorne book on the horizon? It's sitting, it's sitting beside me as we speak. I was working on it just before we began this call and um, I've, I passed 60,000 words uh, yesterday, I think, and so I'm motoring now to the final chapter. Everything is in place. But thank you, Kate, for your very kind remarks. I mean, I, you're, you're, you're saying some very nice things about me, but it also delights me that you have such an understanding of what I'm trying to do in these books. And in the case of Hawthorne, um, my publishers wanted me to write a long-running detective series. And my first thought was, well, who will the detective be? Because that's where it all begins. You know, is he going to be male or female, um, old or young, um, British or from some other part of the world, um, tall or short, fat or thin? Is he going to have a... A, a drug problem or a, an alcohol problem? Is it a he or a she, obviously? I mean, these 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 are the questions I asked myself. And then I began to realise that every type of detective had pretty much been done, as far as I can see. And so therefore, in order to write a series that would be 
fun to write, fun to read, and also different. That's what I'm always searching for. I've been writing now for 40 years, and I think the secret of going so long is to keep challenging yourself and finding new ideas. What could I do that hadn't been done before? And so I had this sudden thought that in a, in a detective story, the relationship between the detective and the sidekick is, is sort of fundamental to it. But then if you add in the relationship with the writer as well, you've got the author on top of the hill and the detective doing all the work and the sidekick trying to make sense of it all. What happens if you take the author off the hill and put him into the book as the sidekick? After all, Watson is theoretically writing the Sherlock Holmes short stories. He is a writer. Uh, as well as a doctor. So that's what I did. And as soon as I did that, I realized that I had a completely fresh take on the whodunit. You know, just to give you one example, I spend the entire time in all three books, because there are now three of them, worrying that if Hawthorne doesn't solve the mystery, I won't have a book. So I'm always sort of, you know, as much as I have a, a difficult time with him, I'm always urging him to get on with it, to find the answer so that I can write it. And, and another question is, you know, what do I describe? I walk into a room and I'm always worried that as a writer, I'm not going to describe the all important clue because I don't know what it is. So you can see that it's sort of murder mystery, but with a real twist to it. And I hope with a smart. I would also add extremely funny. The scene at the book club in the last book, I think, had me laughing more than any other scene I can remember in a recent book. So thank you I for that. Love right now. My two favourite scenes in the Hawthorne books are the book club and the funeral in the first, first book, which I, which I loved writing as well. I wouldn't normally ask this to someone who's obviously right in the midst of another book, but you're such a prolific writer. Is there anything else you're working on at the moment? Well, I'm working on the Alex Ryder TV series. Uh, Amazon produced the first series this year. Um, well, that's where we're showcased. And um, it's done extremely well. And it looks like we're going to be doing a second series next year. I'm not actually the script writer on it, but I'm an executive producer, which means that I do get involved with the scripts. And I've been working very heavily on that this week. Um, there have been final polishes on the TV scripts of Magpie Murders. But uh, most of my work is taken up with getting to the end of... Um, of Hawthorne 3, which incidentally takes place on the island of Alderney, which is um, uh, somewhere I visited a couple of years ago. And it delighted me because there's never been a murder on the island of Alderney ever until, of course, Hawthorne turns up. It was great fun talking to Anthony. What an interesting man. As you can tell, I'm a huge fan of his books. Indeed, I have this very podcast series to thank for introducing me to his hero, Susan Ryland, as it was one of the team at Winchester Discovery Centre who recommended Magpie Murders to us in a podcast last year. I remember that one. Okay, and on to the next section of the podcast, for which we're joined by Mary Stone. You might remember her from past episodes to talk about one of this month's unlimited titles on Box. Mary has been co-anchor with me since the start of our podcast series. She's working on new projects within the council at the moment, but has joined us to bid us farewell and to talk to us about The Five by Hallie Rubenhold. It's good to be back, if only temporarily. Yes, we all miss you in the library team, but it sounds like you're doing great work in your new role. Now, we already know that you're a keen user of Borrowbox, and this month's pick is The Five by Hallie Rubenhold. Would you tell us a bit about it? Well, it came out last year. It's written by social historian Hallie Rubenhold, and it's about the lives of the five women who are believed to have been killed by Jack the Ripper in Whitechapel in 1888. 
The book won the very prestigious Bailey Gifford Prize for the best non-fiction writing in the English language last year. What the author does for the first time is shine the spotlight onto the victims rather than on Jack the Ripper himself. And this is in stark contrast to the usual histories of the killings, of which we're still fascinated by 130 years on, which too often tend to ignore the lives of the women who are just seen as a canvas for the world's most famous murderer to express himself. Yeah, that's what I found fascinating about this book. I knew so little about these women. Probably the only thing I knew, or at least what I thought I knew, was that they were all prostitutes. And that turns out not to be the case anyway. There's a line in it, I've made a note of it, when she says, we have figuratively stepped over the bodies of those he murdered and in some cases stopped to kick them as we walked past. What a line that is. In fact, this book claims there isn't any real evidence that at least two of the victims ever worked as prostitutes. Just as has happened in more recent years, it's the police investigation and the media which has shaped the narrative of the killer targeting victims of bad character. From what this book claims, it seems more likely the victims were targeted because they were drunk, vulnerable and homeless. Yes, that's what the victims really had in common. They were all homeless. And I think we still hold these kind of attitudes about the homeless today. They're viewed as nameless and without identity and we're often afraid of them. Today's society isn't much better in that we still have that Victorian type attitude about deserving and undeserving poor too. Yeah, apparently when um, uh, uh, Hallie Rubenhold, the author, was doing her research, she repeatedly came across the expression, they were just prostitutes, as if somehow the lives of sex workers are less important. In other books which mention the Ripper's victims, it's almost like it kind of doesn't matter who they were because they were already morally damned. Yeah, I, I was really taken aback by how difficult women's lives were in Victorian England and how precarious their situation always seemed to be. The ability to earn money from work was so low. Once they didn't have a man living in their house, they were in real trouble financially. It's like society just wasn't geared towards having women as breadwinners. Women's work was paid so poorly that a woman couldn't survive without a man. So you can really see that in this book, that once a woman was on her own, she would have to take up with a man for economic reasons. And of course, then she'd be judged as an adulteress or as a fallen woman. I thought that throughout the book, it was the details that really brought their lives to life. Right at the end, when you get that chapter listing everything that was found on each of the women who was killed outdoors, there's something really moving about hearing about the personal effects of an individual, such as a thimble, a piece of mirror, or a comb, etc. Yeah, that was extraordinary to know that was all their belongings those few little paltry bits and pieces, that was everything they owned in the world. And I thought that kind of level of detail really mirrored the detail she unearthed throughout the rest of the book. And it's this kind of stuff that helps humanise the victims and gives us a bit of an insight into the reasons behind the choices they made. And the lives of these five women, um, and you know, I think, I think it's important that we say their names, you know, because they're forgotten in history. So we had Polly, Annie, Elizabeth, Catherine and Mary Jane, the, their lives were all quite similar. They were born into poverty or hardship. They had really brief childhoods and then had children of their own. Most of them were dependent on alcohol. They were poor, abused, and they were homeless. The writer says at one point, because they were born female, their worth was compromised before they had even attempted to prove it. And I found that really, really sad. It was also really sobering to hear about the level of homelessness at the time, with literally hundreds of people sleeping rough every night in Trafalgar Square and all over London. 
Hallie Rubenhold brings in lots of accounts of social commentators at the time who helped to bring to light what was going on and which formed the start of the welfare system. I found it awful to hear what role alcohol played in the downfall of these women's lives. It sounds like four out of five of them were really alcohol dependent. But I guess I can imagine it might have been the only way to cope with the physical hardship of sleeping rough every night. One of them, Annie Chapman, was a long-term alcoholic and she was married to a coachman. She had a position with a fair amount of status and she lived in this cottage on her husband's employer's estate. But it sounds like she'd stay sober for months and then be found drunk and disorderly in the street and eventually she had to leave before her family were kind of thrown out. It's noticeable that Hallie Rubenhold doesn't spend any time in the book describing the murders of these women. She barely touches the attacks and the aftermath of the gruesome discoveries of the bodies. She leaves that to other writers and focuses instead on the women behind the crimes. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting take on the Jack the Ripper narrative. I think it's so interesting and so enlightening to see and hear about the lives of these women. I just wanted to mention actually that the narrator, Louise Brealey, who I thought was excellent on the audiobook, you might recognise her voice um, as she's best known for playing Molly Hooper in the TV series Sherlock. I thought she did an amazing job of reading. She was so clear, matter of fact. I've heard her talking about doing the recording for this audiobook and apparently the subject matter had quite an impact on her. I've spotted Louise Brealey as the narrator on quite a few of our Borrowbox audiobooks. I noticed she did Silka's Journey by Heather Morris, the book that we talked about in the last podcast, and The Art of Dying by Ambrose Perry, which I think is available as an unlimited title on Borrowbox at the moment. I'm definitely going to look for other titles that she's done the audio version for, as I think she's really excellent. Well, thanks for coming back to our virtual studio, Mary, to talk about The Five. It's a book which I think you'll agree will stay with us all for a long time and one which we can all highly recommend. You're welcome. I'm glad to be back, even if it is just to uh, sign off with this chat about this amazing book. Um, say goodbye to all our listeners and hope everyone stays tuned for all the future podcast episodes with all the amazing authors I'm sure you have lined up. As well as The Five, there's a fair few other new unlimited titles on Borrowbox this month. You'll find the full list on our podcast notes. But as usual, we'll just mention a few here. One of our unlimited audiobooks is The Crossing Places by Ellie Griffiths. Now, this is, I think, the first in her best-selling Dr Ruth Galloway mysteries with the unusual mix of archaeology and crime. We are big Ellie Griffiths fans here. And in fact, uh, I've just interviewed Ellie about another of her books for a podcast that'll be out shortly. I'm looking forward to that one. There's also The Key to Rebecca, a gripping thriller set during the Second World War from the number one bestseller and former author of the month at Hampshire Libraries, Ken Follett. That's available unlimited as both book and audiobook. There is also one of the incredibly talented Helen Oyeyemi's books, Gingerbread, available unlimited as an audiobook and an ebook. Uh, she's been described by Alice Smith as writing sentences so elegant they gleam. I think that's a lovely description. This book is the tale of family grudges, work and wealth, with gingerbread seeming to be the one thing that holds a constant value. As always, one of these featured titles for October is also our virtual book club choice. You'll find links to this online reading group, which we call Digital Readers, on the Hampshire Library's Facebook page. This month, it's Night Boat to Tangier by Kevin Barry. And I thought it was quite a Tarantino-like tale of two ageing Irishmen, and they are long-time gangster partners, 
and they're waiting at a Spanish port for the eponymous Tangier-bound boat. So download the book and join the conversation through our Hampshire Library's Facebook page. That means that there's just time to say thanks to BorrowBox for supporting this podcast. Don't forget, you can use BorrowBox to download audiobooks and ebooks for free with Hampshire Libraries. That's it for this edition of the podcast. Thanks for joining us. I'm Kate Price-McCarthy. And I'm Hattie Dulac. <laughs>